Do you believe in the paranormal world? Can ghosts really visit us? Can a person truly become possessed by a demon? And can spirits help save our lives? Today I'm going to be talking about many different cases and incidents involving paranormal elements. If you're a non-believer now, then what I am about to talk about may leave you second-guessing yourself. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime and the paranormal. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. And I would like to say welcome back to another Halloween spooktacular episode. Okay, we are honoring Halloween month. And this week we are talking about the paranormal. We are getting closer and closer to Halloween, and that is why I think it's time we talk ghosts. I think it's time we talk demons, and I think it's time we talk about them in real-life scenarios, okay? These things, these entities, these spirits, these curses, these demons, these have... These things have happened to people before. So I dug and I found some paranormal true cases I wanted to share with you this week. I'm going to start off with an infamous case called the Greenbrier Ghost. This ghost is allegedly responsible for naming their murderer after their death. This actually resulted in a murder conviction and the town that this happened in they put up a historic sign about it and so let's talk about this for this ghostly encounter we are going back way back in time to 1897 january 23rd greenbrier county west virginia zona hester had only been known as zona shoe for three months as her and her husband iramas stribling trout shoe yes that's his full name that's what i saw iramas stribling trout shoe i will refer to him as shoe some sources referred to him as edward i'm gonna call him shoe s-h-u-e zona and shoe they had only been married not very long the two had met the previous year in 1896 when shoe became new to the town from what i gather he was a bit of a mystery to zona and their relationship moved incredibly fast the two met and married within the same year i'm not sure when zona got pregnant but I think she was pregnant. She must have been pregnant on the day she died. And I'm going to talk about that more soon. Although this seems to be kind of a fact about this case that comes up a lot. But there's not much information around it. You'll see what I mean when I keep talking about this. 
Shu worked as a blacksmith in the town and he and Zona, they moved into a big farmhouse and I saw a picture of this farmhouse and it really reminded me of the conjuring house. Maybe that's how a lot of homes were built uh, a long time ago in America because I see this style a lot when it comes to old farm homes in America and this one was no different. She worked all day blacksmithing and Zona worked all day in the home. Zona, I guess she fell a bit ill and since Shu couldn't check on her as much as he'd like or help out around the house with the chores as much as he liked, he hired a small child who lived in the community, a neighboring child, to check on his wife from time to time and also go over there and help do some chores that she couldn't do because she was feeling a bit sick. So she needed help. He hires this neighborhood kid to help. January 23rd, 1897, Shu gets up like he does every morning. He goes to work like he does every morning and he stops by the child's home and he asks the child, hey, you want to go around my house today? I'll pay you to go help my wife. Like he's done before, this is nothing new. And this day, the kid was like, no, I can't do that. I'm actually working for somebody else today. And she was like, oh, uh, please, can you please do this for me? My wife, she'll, she, you know, she needs you. She's sick. This kid is like, I'm sorry, I can't. I've already told this guy that I'm going to go work for him today. So she was like, okay, fine. And he leaves. Apparently, she wouldn't give up, though. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And he kept pestering this child. He went to this child's house four or five different times that day to ask him, to go check on his wife. Eventually, the kid, he's thinking, okay, fine, I'll just do it to get this guy away from me. Maybe he had finished his job with whoever he was working with that day. But Shu goes over there and he's asking the kid for like the fifth time, please go check on my wife. Please go do some chores over there. She really needs you, whatever. And the kid finally says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go over there now. And she's like, thank you. And the kid's like, okay, thank you. Leave me alone now. This kid is young. He's 11 or something. He walks over to the shoe home and he knocks, but there's no answer. He looks down and he sees blood on the step. He then tries the door handle and the door is open. He walks into the house searching for Zona and he follows this blood trail that leads from the front step into the home he follows it he follows it into the dining room where he finds zona dead on her back face up eyes open shu is immediately contacted and he is told that his wife has been found doesn't look good looks like she's dead he makes a scene he yells he's like ah and he rushes home When he gets home, he seemed to have wasted no time at all. No time at all, okay? He goes to the closet. He gets out this flowing white dress, perfect for a funeral. And he dresses Zona in it. In this long white dress for burial. And this funeral dress had a big collar on it. And this collar hid her entire neck. The doctor hadn't even got there yet. 
he hadn't even gotten there yet just she showed up he's like oh no my wife's dead let me immediately dress her and put her on the bed and cradle her head so when the doctor arrives the doctor comes in and he sees zona wearing this white burial dress with this huge collar i believe he had even tied a scarf around the collar he was styling it he was giving it accessories and he's sitting on the bed with zona and he's got her head in his lap and he's just beside himself he is crying and screaming and sobbing and just very very distraught so the doctor's seeing this situation and he doesn't really want to take zona away from her grieving husband to examine her body thoroughly uh he's feeling really bad for Shu. he doesn't want to put more he doesn't want to put Shu through more than than what he has to so the doctor he just guesses and he says oh um looks like she died from heart failure and everyone in the room was like yep okay without looking over her body without there was no autopsy done here her heart wasn't looked at her body wasn't looked over and the doctor's like heart failure and everyone's like yep write it on the death certificate and start digging that grave now if she died from heart failure then what the hell was the trail of blood that the kid followed where did that blood come from so in this source that I read, it both said there was this trail of blood and it also said she, the doctor said she died of heart failure. But in another source that I found, it read that the doctor said Zona died in childbirth, which that could explain the trail of blood. So this detail of of the doctor saying that Zona died of heart failure and the doctor saying that Zona died of childbirth. This is the two things that I kept reading in in many, many sources. So I'll just tell you both here. But the main one I kept seeing was heart failure. But the death in childbirth one, that kind of makes sense too. So I don't know exactly what happened. I'm just telling you what my sources are saying. The thing is, there is never any mention about her being pregnant, how far along she was, where that trail of blood came from, was she giving birth and then alone and then died. There's just not a lot of information about this this birth or her being pregnant. But I mean, if she died of heart failure, where did that blood trail come from? There's just a lot of unanswered questions here. But let's move on. Zona's funeral was the next morning. When I said they're going to dig that grave right away, they were absolutely digging that grave right away. Things were moving quick. Shu seemed to be very protective of his wife's dead body. This actually had a few people side-eyeing him. They're like, why are you so obsessed with your wife's dead body? Um, it wasn't typical that the husband would, would look after his deceased wife's body. It was usually women who knew that woman would dress her and do her makeup and care for her body. So the fact that he was so glued to her body... It wasn't the common practice back then. So yeah, people were side-eyeing him because he was stuck to her like glue. And it was almost like he didn't want anyone to get close to her. 
specifically her head. I guess from what I understand, he was standing at her head side of the coffin and it didn't really seem like he was letting people get too close to her. If people wanted to say a prayer or say goodbye, it sounded like he was kind of keeping them at arm's length. Zona's body was buried near her mother's home, which was on the other side of the mountain from from where they lived. The death of Zona had Zona's mother, Mary, terribly upset. Mary, she, she just wasn't at peace with how her daughter died. She wasn't buying this, whether it was the heart failure or died in childbirth, whichever one is what Mary was told or what actually happened. She wasn't at peace with any of this. And she prayed for answers. And one day, about a month after her daughter's death, she got them. Mary said Zona came to her when she was praying. Mary said her daughter's spirit appeared in front of her as a colorful aura in the shape of a person. Then the aura actually looked just like Zona. Mary knew it was her daughter's spirit trying to speak to her from beyond the grave to give her the answers she was praying for. The next day, Zona's spirit came to Mary again and told her things about her home that she and her husband Shu shared together. Just details about the home. Mary had never been there before. So later when she retells this and everything she says is completely accurate, this only solidifies that Zona's spirit had come to her mother. The following day, Zona's spirit visits her mother again. Every day she's visiting her mom. She's she's giving her a little bit more. The first day she shows herself. The second day she tells her things that she wouldn't otherwise know unless she talked to her daughter from beyond the grave. So on this third visit, Zona tells her mother all about how wicked and vile her husband truly is is he was angry and mean and he had also been married twice before beating both of those women like he he beat her and one of those wives previous that he had had also died under odd circumstances just like zona a day after that zona's spirit came back again to speak with mary for a fourth time this time revealing that it was her husband shu who killed her zona's spirit tells her mother that shu got mad that night before her body was found he was mad about what she had made for dinner he sounded like he was very very controlling he didn't like what she had made for dinner and they got into an argument because she talked back and he snapped her neck. This would explain why when the neighbor boy found Zona's body, she was already very cold. He did say that. He's like, yes, I found her. I touched her to see if she was okay. And she was very cold because she had been dead since the evening prior. This would also explain why Shu held Zona's head and put that big dress collar around her neck and then tied a scarf to it and then sat on the bed crying with his wife's head in his lap because 
if she moved, then the doctor would easily be able to tell that her neck was broken if, if he were to examine her neck and, and move her neck. This would also be why Shu was pestering the neighbor boy so much to go over there. He didn't want to be the one to discover, I'm doing, I'm doing um, quotations, discover his wife's body. He needed it to look like he had nothing to do with it. That includes not finding it. So that would explain why he was so persistent with this little boy to go over to his house. Mary wanted desperately to tell the world about this and she even went to the courthouse and told a prosecutor about these visions. The doctor who was supposed to examine Zona's body, he was called upon. They're like, let's call this doctor, let's get him in here because he should know. And he, this doctor comes in and he admits that he never looked over Zona's body and he says he didn't do that because Shu was so distraught and he was holding Zona's head in his arms the entire time he didn't think it was right to examine examine Zona's body with her husband so upset and grieving and holding on to her this raised a lot of eyebrows and led to Zona's body being exhumed Okay, this actually happened. And this next part is crazy. What was found when Zona's body was exhumed shocked everyone. Everyone. Not just because this did appear to be a murder, but it was exactly, exactly as Zona's spirit told her mother from beyond the grave. Zona's neck was broken. Yeah, they exhumed her body. They look over her body. Oh, would you look at that? Her neck has been snapped, two vertebrae broken, her windpipe crushed, and finger marks around her neck, which was covered by that big collar with the scarf tied around it that her husband had dressed her in. Mm hmm. This led to the arrest of Zona's husband, and guess. What else was true that Zona's spirit told her mother? Shu did in fact have two wives before her and the one who was still alive, because that's right, another one was dead. He had two dead wives at this point. There's one who's still alive and that woman comes forward and she says, yeah, Shu was very cruel, very mean to me, very cold, cold man. We just don't know what the other wives have to say because they're dead, which I think speaks for itself. Apparently, Shu had a desire to wed seven women because that's what he started saying after. They're like, okay, well, you are in jail for uh, murdering your third wife. We know you have two other wives. Uh, and out of those two, only one is alive. Uh, what's going on here? And he's like, I want to marry seven women. And they're like, okay, um, all right. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he meant that he wanted to marry all seven women at the same time or one after another, but either way, people did not like this comment. Okay, this is the 1800s. This is not something... I mean, even him being married three times, even having those divorces, that was just very, very unheard of. 
June of that year, the trial started and Mary took the stand. She took the stand fighting for her daughter to get justice against the man she believed murdered her. The defense questioned Mary tirelessly. They asked her about her daughter's spirit visiting her and telling her all of this stuff and that's how she knew and that's what led to her wanting the body to be exhumed and she confidently answered all questions regarding the spiritual encounter. She didn't shy away. She was very confident. She said, yeah, my daughter's spirit did come visit me. My daughter's spirit did tell me that her husband snapped her neck. Yes, that is exactly what I'm telling you and you and you and you and everybody in here. And then guess what? It was true because we exhumed her body and her neck was broken. The community believed her and Shu's defense in no way made her look unreliable or crazy, which is what they were probably trying to do by bringing that up. But it didn't work. People believed her and you can see why. You can see why people believed her because it's, it, how else would she know that? How else would she know that her daughter's neck was broken? How else would she know details about her daughter's house where she had never been before unless her daughter's spirit was talking to her and people took this on people were like yeah we believe you we believe you mary bring it into the courtroom you're not gonna look unreliable to us the prosecution they didn't even bring up the spiritual encounter they relied on the evidence before them and guess what she was found guilty Yep, guilty of the murder of his wife, Zona. A lynch mob, that's right, a lynch mob formed very quickly after he was found to be guilty. And this lynch mob, it was stopped, it was apprehended, if you will, after the guilty verdict. You know, they were taking it upon themselves to go and get Shu and hang him in the street to die in front of everybody but i believe the police uh, stopped this lynch mob so Shu did not meet that absolutely horrifying fate could you imagine a lynch mob coming for you and hanging you in the street 1800s was crazy uh, Shu did, however, die in prison a few years later in the year 1900 like I said earlier, there uh, I was talking earlier about a historic sign in West Virginia about this spiritual encounter that solved a murder. It is located near the cemetery Zona's body was laid to rest in, and this is what it reads. I'm going to read you this sign that is still there to this day. If you are ever in West Virginia and you're near this town and you want to go look at it, like this story is famous in this town. I'm going to read you the historic sign. Quote, Interned in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester Shue. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward found guilty of murder was sentenced to the state prison only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer unquote 
see that? That is a true ghost murder, true crime story. Can you believe it? Can you freaking believe it? That the Greenbrier ghost, okay, the Green, you go there and they're like, hey, check out the Greenbrier ghost. And uh, you want to know how she helped solve her own murder from beyond the grave? Come over here. We'll take you on a tour. I'd be like, yes, please. Okay. That is the green, the Greenbrier ghost of West Virginia. If I'm ever in the area, you know I'm going to take a tour of that town. Now, let's take a look at a more recent ghost story. I'm going to go recent and then I'm going to go back in time again. I mean, depending on your age, you might think that... <laughs> You might think that this one's really old too. And just saying that makes me really sad because it's not. This is the 1994 case of Christine and Nick Skubish. June 5th, 23-year-old Christine Skubish and her three-year-old son Nick leave Sacramento and head for Nevada. This meant that early morning around 2.30 a.m. on June 6th, they were on Highway 50 in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Now I could imagine this road is very treacherous, very windy, it's late, and she's tired. By June 8th, Christine and her son are reported missing by her father as nobody had seen them since the 5th. They left Sacramento. They said they were heading for Nevada. I believe Christine was heading there for a paralegal job. And by the 8th, no one had seen them and they were reported missing. Christine's family hands out flyers and they start searching for her. Police are also searching for her, but no leads come up. They cannot find her. It's like she just vanished. Christine's father gets a call from his sister-in-law who is 600 miles away. She says that she had just had a dream, or I guess you could call this a premonition. And in this premonition, she said that she saw the three-year-old Nick, Christine's son, and he was alone in the dark. She could see lights every so often, but otherwise it was very dark. And she also kept seeing the number 16 over and over and over again. This number kept popping up. She really felt that the number 16 was significant. Five days into Christine and Nick missing, a woman named Deborah Hoyt and her husband, they're in Sacramento on holiday to see family. Deborah, she wakes suddenly in the night. She wakes up at 2 a.m., and she has this overwhelming need to go home right then and there. She is adamant. She's like, we got to go. She wakes her husband up. She's shaking him and she says, we got to go and we're going right now. He tries to calm her down. He tries to reason with her, but she won't hear it. She has to go right then and there. She said it was as if something was pulling her up into that mountain. Her and her husband get in the car and they start driving home on Highway 50, the Sierra Nevada mountain range, the same highway Christine and Nick drove on. 
The couple are unknowingly near mile marker 16 when Deborah sees something on the side of the road. She can't make out what it is until she gets closer, but then she sees it. A naked woman laying lifeless on her side in the gravel. Deborah screams that she just saw a naked woman laying there and her husband says, we should go back. We should help her. But Deborah thinks, no, it could be a trap. There could be people hiding in the bush. They've put this nude woman here to bait us into pulling over, getting out of our vehicle where they can then rob us. They can abduct us. They can murder us. They can do whatever they want. So just keep going. We're not getting out of the car. Let's just call police instead and have, have police check it out. So that's what they do. They drive not far up the road, not far up the road at all. And they call police from a payphone and they wait there for the the police. When an officer arrived minutes later, Deborah told the officer what she had seen and where she had seen it. That police officer, he asked them to go with him, to go back where they had seen this, to, to, to bring him there. And he would check it out with a spotlight, and that's what he does. They go back to the the site. He pulls the spotlight out. He's looking all around. Deborah doesn't see anything. The cop doesn't see anything. And Deborah can't explain it, but she knows that she saw something. And the cop, he can't do anything. It's nighttime. It's dark. He has nothing to go on, and he leaves and Deborah and her husband they leave as well but Deborah she knew she could feel something was out there she just didn't know what it was that night she gets home she tries to go to sleep but she kept waking up and she was crying she was thinking about that that naked woman that she saw and she it just this thought would not leave her alone A police officer working on the missing persons case of Christine and Nick, he heard about this naked woman on the side of the road sighting. I'm assuming he heard buzz going around the small police precinct about it. And he had a gut feeling that this was related to Christine and Nick. He didn't know how, he didn't know why he thought this. He heard about this naked woman who... Deborah had seen on the side of the road the officer checked it out there was nothing but this officer he couldn't shake the feeling that this was related to the missing persons case he was working on he knew that an officer had searched the side of the road and found nothing but the sun was starting to come up and he wondered if he looked in in daylight if he could find anything possibly the officer missed something in the dark he went back and he was looking for any clues any tread marks anything and he finds something he finds a child's tennis shoe on the side of the road right where Deborah said she had seen the naked woman lying in the gravel. So the officer, he goes into the bush to look around. He goes into the trees that are nearby. And that's when he sees a car that had gone off the road and down the hill. The car's roof had been completely peeled off and contents of the car spilled out all over the wooded area. This was an absolutely horrific car accident and nobody even knew the car was down there. The officer hustles down the 
the incline to get to the car below. And he quickly realizes that it's Christine Skubish's car. And he can see Christine sitting in the car behind the wheel. And it is very clear that she is dead. She had been pinned in the vehicle. She was not the naked woman seen on the road. She was fully clothed and it is very apparent that she could not leave that vehicle and she died upon impact. Her three-year-old son, however, he was naked and, and laying beside Christine. And the officer, he didn't know if this three-year-old boy was alive and he said it was one of the most horrific things he he could have ever seen. So like I said, Christine was very clearly killed upon impact, but as he goes to look over Nick, he realizes that Nick is still alive. He can see his little chest rising and falling. He can feel uh, air going in and out out of his nose, and Nick survived. It had been five days since they had gone missing. They were in the wilderness. Christine was dead. This little boy who's three years old survived for five days in a wrecked car in the woods with his deceased mother beside him, which is just so sad. It's been theorized that Nick had made it up to the road and that's when his shoe was dropped there. But I would guess it's more likely the shoe was thrown from the car and landed on the side of the road. Uh, But a lot of people do theorize that he climbed up the road. He lost his shoe there. He climbed down. He took all of his clothes off because it was really warm. And then it got cold and he just never put his clothes back on. They're not really sure. But I mean, who's to say that that the little three-year-old boy had clothes on in the first place? I'm sure a lot of mothers just keep their three-year-olds in diapers. I I don't know. I could imagine that's just easier. But um, Nick's alive. He's alive. The three-year-old boy is alive. He's been through hell. He's been through so much, but he's alive despite all odds. Nick appears in an interview with Paranormal Witnesses as an adult. I would guess he's about, I don't know, 20 years old when he when I when I watched him in this interview. And he describes the moment that the accident happened. He was three years old when this happened, and he's 20 years old, and he can still describe it. He said he remembered going off of the road. He remembered the car hitting many trees on its way down he remembers looking at his mother when the car stopped and thinking she was sleeping and then he remembers seeing a bright glowing light beside her and then he saw this same bright glowing light up the hill by the road where they had just been before the accident. He said he saw a shadow figure in the light that took on the shape of a woman. It didn't scare him. It didn't give him bad energy. It gave him warm, calming, safe energy. And he believes this was an angel sent by God or his mother looking out for him from the other side. Many people believe this was his mother's spirit looking after him. 
It is largely believed that Deborah Hoyt saw Christine's spirit that night on the side of the road, trying to bring attention to her dying son in the bush. Because Deborah kept saying she just knew something was out there. And there was. There was a three-year-old boy down there in a car wreck who was alive. She knew something was out there, but she didn't know what. And she knew that because of this vision of this naked woman she saw on the, on the side of the road in that spot. And if that's what Christine's ghost was doing, then it worked. Right where Deborah saw that unidentified naked woman lying on the side of the road, that was exactly where Christine and Nick went off the road five days earlier. When Deborah saw a picture of Christine, she said, that's the woman I saw on the side of the road. And when I say I got chills, I mean head to toe. I am getting chills right now, right now, just talking about this. There is no possible way that Deborah saw Christine on the side of the road because Christine was killed on impact and was essentially pinned in the vehicle. It couldn't have been her physical body. There was no way she ever got out of that vehicle, undressed, got up to the road, laid there, was seen, got back down the hill, got into the wrecked car, put on all of her clothes, and then appeared to be pinned in the car. That just didn't happen. What Deborah saw would 100% be something paranormal. And she, when she saw a picture of Christine, she said, that's the woman I saw. So she is saying it was Christine's spirit. This is perhaps one of the most amazing paranormal cases I have ever heard of. It is just undeniable that Christine from the spirit world helped to save her son. Amazing. How else do you explain what Deborah saw and what she felt that night? She had a real connection with Christine's spirit. Deborah had an entire, okay, let's just say that Deborah's eyes were playing tricks on her and this was just an absolutely wild coincidence. Deborah had an entire mountain pass to see something on the side of the road. If it, if it was her, her eyes and the light and her fatigue playing tricks on her. For her to see something right where Christine had gone off the road, it just, it cannot be a coincidence. Her eyes were not playing tricks on her. She saw what she saw and it led to a three-year-old boy being saved. This next paranormal case is a bit different from the last two cases as this is how a ghost caused a murder? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Let's just get into it. In Hammersmith, England in 1804, it seemed a ghost was terrorizing the townspeople. People were seeing what they believed to be a ghost walking around the town at nighttime in places like the cemetery, the church's yard, and the streets. So there was a ghost and it liked to walk around and it liked to fuck with people. Multiple people had encounters with this ghost. Many people had said they'd seen it and uh, this caused a lot of panic. People claiming to see this ghost, it caused 
a lot of panic. People were afraid to leave their homes after dark in fear of having a meeting with this g -g -g ghost. Um, the paper, the newspaper was writing about this ghost. One guy said uh, the ghost grabbed his throat in a graveyard one night. He said him and his friend were walking through this graveyard and uh, this ghost came out from behind a grave and grabbed him by the neck and twisted him around. And when he reached out, he felt fur or something. I'm not really sure. Is this a ghost? Is it a demon? What do we got here? Uh, another source said that a pregnant lady was out walking at nighttime, I believe in the church's yard, and this ghost came up to her and it hugged her. It gave her a hug. It went in and it hugged her. Um, this apparently scared her so much that a few days later she died. I guess it was suspected to be a heart attack, but a few days later. I mean, I could see her having, I mean, she's pregnant. She gets really terrified. I could see her having a heart attack right then and there, but it said a few days later. So I don't really know. And then it, I, and then I also read that this happened again to an elderly woman as well. So this ghost was going around and putting its mitts all over people and just causing hysteria, just causing an absolute shit show. So how were people describing this ghost? Many people had seen it. What were they saying it looked like? Well, on December 29th, 1803, a night watchman said he got a pretty good look at this ghost and he said it appeared to be wearing a sheet or a tablecloth. Uh, wait a minute. A sheet or a tablecloth. That sounds like a person wearing a homemade ghost costume rather than a real ghost to me, but what do I know? This night watchman said that the ghost lifted its veil and was wearing a jacket that was black with, I think he said silver buttons. It was some type of buttons on it. So again, this is sounding less and less like a ghost and more and more like somebody having a laugh and uh, fucking with these townspeople. I mean, it's 1804. There was probably very little entertainment. Also, can we just take a moment to imagine this situation? Someone in this town, someone in this town in 1804 has an idea to take a white sheet or a white tablecloth, which probably belonged to their wife or their mother or someone who's going to be pissed off when they find mud and dirt all over this white sheet or tablecloth they steal this cloth from wherever they get it from and they put it over their head and they walk around at night pretending to be a ghost <laughs> that is hilarious if i went back in time if i was in the year 1804 i'm thinking this is what i'm gonna do at night i've got an idea if i get in a time machine i go back to the early 1800s 
I think this would be fucking hilarious because it would for sure work. This would for sure work. This was probably the invention of the ghost costume. Before this, nobody had even seen it before. That's what I would guess. I mean, that would never work today. But back then, this would work. People were very superstitious in the 1800s. Still, I mean, people are pretty superstitious. But I feel like in the 1800s, superstition was very strong. Probably the sheet ghost costume wasn't played out at all. It was probably brand new. And I just think that um, this is a really hilarious situation. I mean, if people actually died by being scared to death from this ghost, I couldn't really tell. That wouldn't be so cool. Maybe don't do that. But there was no, I couldn't find any actual record of the people dying from being scared to death from seeing this ghost. So I'm not sure if this is just to, kind of bulk up this story if it did happen that's not cool that the ghost actually scared people to death but if it was just a harmless running through the streets making ghost noises in the sheet and watching people freak out that is hilarious so after reading this night watchman's description i think it's safe to say we know what's going on in this town um people are terrified but is it actually a spirit that's after them? I'm highly doubting it. In January, a stagecoach driver on his carriage. So we're now January 1804. A stagecoach driver, he was on his carriage. He had horses pulling him along at nighttime when all of a sudden out jumps this ghost. The stagecoach driver jumped off of his carriage, abandoned his horses. I don't know if he had like four or six horses. He had a lot of horses pulling his carriage and he ran into town to alert everybody. He comes running into town and he says, hey, that damn ghost just jumped out at me and my horses and I abandoned my horses and I, I ran here to tell you, uh, come back with me and let's go look at this ghost together. He described the ghost with a bit more imagination than most had before, uh, but he still said it was the ghost. I believe he said it had horns and fur, and he kind of described a demon situation, but he did say it was in all white. This ghost, this carriage driver, he goes back there with the townspeople, and all of his horses had been unhitched from the stagecoach and they were all grazing peacefully. And he said, no, I did not unhook them. I literally got scared, jumped out of the carriage and ran back into town to tell you guys. And there his horses were peacefully grazing, not hooked up to the cart at all. So this is a, this ghost uh, seems to really like horses at least. But how were the townspeople going to stop this ghost? Well, after this incident, the town was offering a reward for the ghost's capture. A whole five guineas. However much that is, I, I don't know. I don't know what that would equal to today. I don't I'd like to guess like $100 or something. But I do not know the conversion rate of guineas. To, to dollars don't know didn't look it up january 3rd a man named francis smith 
he got his shotgun out and he headed into town that night in search of the ghost. Uh-oh, uh-oh, what's gonna happen? He was determined to stop this ghost once and for all with his shotgun. He met another man out that night. Uh, this man was a night watchman. He was working his job. He was doing his rounds. And Francis told him his plans. And that guy said, hell yeah. Hell yeah, I want to look for this ghost. I am keen. Let me finish my rounds and we'll do the damn thing. So the two made a pact that if they come across each other, a surefire way for them not to get confused and I guess shoot each other by thinking each other is the ghost uh, is for them to have a code. So I guess it was either snowy or foggy or just very, very dark because there's just no streetlights. I mean, 1804. So their code was something along the lines of one of them would say, who goes there? The other one would say friend and then the one who said who goes there would say advance friend. <laughs> oh, it feels like they're um, teenagers in a fort and the fort says no girls allowed. <laughs> That's the vibe. Okay, so who goes there friend advance friend. This would mean no shots would be fired. Okay. I mean, what could go wrong? There couldn't possibly be other people out walking around. Around 11 p.m. that night, Francis Smith sees a white figure emerging through the darkness in the streets. And he yells, damn you, who are you and what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you. And then he shoots. He actually was saying this and shooting at the same time. It wasn't like he said all this waited for a response no no as he's saying this he took a shot in hammersmith at this time lived a bricklayer and this bricklayer's name was thomas millwood as a bricklayer thomas wore all white white pants white jacket white apron it was just how bricklayers dressed and in the not so distant past thomas had been accidentally pointed out as the ghost one night the there was two women in a carriage and they saw him from afar and they shouted there's the ghost and they were pointing and flinging these ghost accusations at thomas and he shouted back that he was no more of a ghost than they are <laughs> so polite i am no more of a ghost than you are um but then he also shouted you want a punch in the face <laughs> uh yeah i'm no more of a ghost than you are you want a punch in the face i mean damn calling someone a ghost must have been a huge insult back then for thomas to yell at two women that he basically wants to punch them in the face i guess he's not saying he maybe he said head i think he said you want a punch in the head <laughs> i don't think it was face i think it was head anyways made me laugh for a really long time when i was researching this just picturing that whole situation thomas's family had mentioned to thomas that maybe he shouldn't be going out at night wearing his work clothes anymore 
and he did not like that comment. He, I kind of feel uh, Thomas is a guy who doesn't like to be told what to do. Um, and he's not going to change the things he's doing for anyone. I don't know. Because he saw nothing wrong with what he was doing and he saw no need to change. And really, he's not hurting anyone, but it was more so so people wouldn't point and call him a ghost. You know, his family was just looking out for him and he wasn't hearing it. He liked wearing his all white work uniform and he, he kept wearing it out at night. And it was on on this night on January 3rd at 11 p.m. that Thomas was leaving the home of his his parents where his sister lived he was visiting his parents and his sister and he was on his way home when Francis Smith mistook Thomas for the ghost that's who he was yelling at that's who Francis Smith was yelling damn you who are you what are you damn you I'll shoot and then shot it was Thomas that he shot. Thomas was shot in the face and he died as a result. His sister saw the entire incident from the window of their home as Thomas had only just left their their house to walk to his house. The sister ran over to Thomas and he wasn't moving and his face was uh, covered in, in black gun smoke I would guess or the gunpowder uh which leads people to believe that he was shot at very very close range Thomas's body was taken to a nearby inn or a pub or something like this and it, it was there that a surgeon confirmed that it was in fact the gunshot injury that had killed Thomas the bullet blew off Thomas's jaw and went through his vertebrae in his neck as well as injuring spinal marrow. It was absolutely horrific. Francis Smith, he was never known to be a cruel or unkind man. And yet here he was now arrested for murder. He ends up going to court and there is an argument as to if this was considered murder because the intent to kill a man wasn't there. He didn't intend to kill a human. Francis thought he was killing a ghost, I guess. So he didn't think he was killing a man. The judge said that had he tried to apprehend the ghost, then that is fine. But Francis, he didn't try to apprehend the ghost or contain the ghost. He tried to kill the ghost, which in turn was actually a man and therefore it's murder. Francis had no right to shoot anyone that night, ghost or man or whatever. Um, had he tried to contain the ghost you tie it up or jump on the ghost or whatever he was supposed to do to to try to contain this ghost then nobody would have died because he would have realized it was a man once he got punched in the head by thomas he would have quickly learned it wasn't a ghost at all but this isn't what he did this isn't what he did. He shot first and he asked questions later. Once all the arguments were heard, the jury said that Francis Smith was guilty of manslaughter. And that 
makes sense. Uh, but the judge said, no, no manslaughter charge, murder or nothing. I was like, damn, judge. Okay. The jury then came back and said, okay, guilty of murder then. And for this, Francis was sentenced to death by hanging the following Monday. Holy shit, that just got worse. That's, that sentence just got worse and worse as it went. Sentenced to death by hanging the following Monday. It's just, this is moving very fast and it's very brutal because, the, okay, so this shooting happened at the beginning of January and this hanging was scheduled for the end of that same month. That is so fast. That means the crime has happened. It has been looked over. The body has been looked over. They're, they caught the guy. They're sure it's the guy. He's gone to trial. He's been found guilty and he's been sentenced. And they've set a date for his execution. All in less than a month. That's fucking crazy. On January 24th though, the king, he gets involved. And he comes in, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to pardon Francis. He is no longer going to be hung. I've heard about what happened here and I'm going to step in because this doesn't seem right. So how the hell did the king find out about this so fast and then act on it all within this same month? I have no idea. Since Francis was no longer being hung, but was still guilty of taking a man's life, his sentence ended up being one year of hard labor. And for some reason, I was really curious as to what hard labor was in the 1800s, because I feel like it would be really, really hard. I never found out, but I was very curious about that. Now for the question we have all been asking. Who or what was this ghost everyone seemed to be seeing around Hammersmith? Well, there is no explanation set in stone and that bothers me, but here is one that I believe fits the bill pretty well. A local shoemaker named John Graham somehow gets called out for dressing up like a ghost. Apparently he had been putting on a white sheet and scaring his apprentices at night as payback for them scaring his children by telling them ghost stories. It seemed this was all a harmless prank that got way out of control. The reason why this explanation is debated is because Graham says he only did this ghost prank one time. Not many, many times like the townspeople are saying they saw this ghost many, many times. What were the townspeople seeing? Was, d d is Graham just saying, oh no, I, um, I only did it once, but really he did it a lot of times? We will never truly know, but something tells me the shoemaker uh, with the white sheet over him may have gone out more times than just once. This next case I spoke briefly about in last year's episode regarding movies based on true events, but only very briefly. I don't, I don't believe I went into any detail at all. This year, I do want to go into a bit of depth with this. And I'm talking about the case of Arnie Johnson. So a lot of people were saying Arn. I'm going to say Arnie. A-R-N-E, Arnie Johnson. A movie was released a few years ago called The Devil Made Me Do It. 
And this is in fact based on his crime and claims of being possessed during his crime. This was actually the first court case where the defense used the argument that their client was possessed by a demonic spirit at the time of the murder. That's right, this actually happened. And guess who were creeping around in the shadows before and after all of this shit went down? If you are gonna say Ed and Lorraine Warren, you are exactly right. The movie, it, um, it, it isn't that far off of how the actual events are told. Basically how they say how Arnie Johnson's crimes went down, that he was possessed by the devil, it is exactly like the movie. Okay, well, in September of 1980, the Gletzel family in Brookfield, Connecticut, move into a new home they have just started renting. As the family cleans, the boy, who, by the way, could be eight years old, could be 12 years old, it changed depending on the source. His name is David, and he says, hey, I keep seeing this scary old man and he's speaking Latin and he's scaring me. Also, he says he wants my soul. The family to David says, okay, whatever. They, they must not have believed David until he starts acting possessed. I did read that the mom said she always believed him, but David, he did also say this ghost man speaking Latin who wanted his soul said that if the family moves in, he will hurt them. And yet they still all moved in and then acted surprised when David was possessed and getting hurt. If the family was listening to everything this child is saying, I feel like it wouldn't have gone this far, but apparently it did. How does Arnie Johnson fit into this family though? This isn't his family. Well, he is dating the boy's older sister, and I believe he did live with them for a while during this time as well. So the older sister's name is Debbie. Arnie is dating Debbie, and that's how he is involved with this family. And you need to know this because it's during a exorcism of sorts during one of these possession episodes on David that an evil demonic spirit leaves David's body and goes into Arnie's body. He basically invited it in. He was like, why don't you leave him alone? Why don't you take me instead? And the demon said, okay. And that's how Arnie got possessed. I guess David had 43 demons and two devils attached to him. I don't know, who's counting? Well, Ed and Lorraine. Warren were counting. That's how we got that count. But let's back it up a minute. How did the family know that David was possessed or being tormented by spirits? How did they know this? What tipped them off and made them call Ed and Lorraine Warren in the first place to exercise these demons from David, from their home? Well, David started acting weird. He started having night terrors. I think he was even being thrown around his room. He was getting injured and not remembering how the injuries occurred, such as bruising and scratching all over his body. David was becoming aggressive. He attacked his grandma with a knife. He assaulted his mother by spitting on her and kicking her. He was acting like 
a demon. And this was very not like David. He was levitating, household items were moving without being touched. You know, the usual demonic presence type of stuff. And the family, they were terrified. At first, the family called the church to come in and bless the house. They thought that that might put an end to all of this. But it was clear that much, much more needed to be done a blessing was not going to take care of this there were some depraved evil spirits and they were attached to david and they were in this house and they were ripping this family apart so enter ed and lorraine warren this is when they get a call and they go over there and they say oh hell yeah you have demons for sure And I think we can help. And by help, I mean, maybe we'll write a book about this and maybe we'll make a lot of money from it. But that's another story. That's another story. I'm not even going to get into that right now. Ed and Lorraine are so concerned about what they are seeing and hearing that they actually called police. And they told police something bad was going to happen. I believe this was in October. So in October, Lorraine calls police she said something bad is gonna happen but I mean she didn't have any specifics to give them so they didn't and couldn't do anything you know what are they supposed to do they call police and say yeah something bad is gonna happen okay well who what where and when you know (laughs) it didn't really help police at all but Lorraine was like remember I told you it's October and I'm telling you something bad is gonna happen and police are like okay Lorraine bye bye February 16th four months later that's the when that's the when Lorraine should have given police Arnie Johnson and Alan Bono that's the who and murder is the what it is said that by this time Arnie had been displaying the same possessed behaviors David had such as growling and going into a trance almost like he was in another reality at times like he wasn't himself Uh, it was as if something powerful and sinister had had taken over him completely at times things were getting really weird And apparently Arnie had found a well on the property and he had looked inside and a demon was in there and he talked to it and it looked him in the eyes, which Ed and Lorraine told him specifically not to do that, (laughs) which I thought was a very specific request, but he did it. So apparently this was also a cause of his possession so he got one of these demons out of david's body he got one of them from a well so i don't know he was double possessed debbie and Artie, along with a, a couple others i believe they had started renting a place so they moved out of that house where all of that stuff was happening they moved into another place they start renting a place from a man named alan bono Alan Bono also ran a dog kennel business, which Debbie was employed at. She worked there. Apparently, Alan drank a lot, and this left Debbie to do most of the work. 
And this is why she often brought along her younger cousins. She could really use the extra hands after all. They were bored and young and loved dogs, so she would bring them along. It was a win-win-win. On this mid-February day, she did bring along three of her youngest cousins. Amongst them was nine-year-old Mary. This day, Arnie, he was supposed to go to um, his own job. He had a job lopping trees, a tree lopper, whatever you want to call them. But he called in sick and he went with Debbie to her job. Alan, he didn't seem to mind as he was only paying Debbie. The rest of these people were just coming along for free. So he didn't mind at all. Alan, he did something very nice that day and he took everyone out for lunch. Um, but during that lunch, he drank heavily, heavily. It sounds like Alan had a bit of a drinking problem. Alan was intoxicated by the time lunch was over. Everyone goes back to the kennels and things start to get out of control. Now, just like in the movie, there is music blaring. And apparently this happened in the real situation as well. Arnie fixed Alan's stereo and he was playing the music really, really loudly. And it's this part of the movie that it really spikes my anxiety because you have this loud, loud music, you have aggression building, you have the camera spinning around in circles, and it is just, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't think it caused anticipation. I think that it only served to raise anxiety, and I am not watching a horror movie to have my anxiety raised. No way. I, I think there's a huge difference between building anticipation and just creating pure anxiety. And I feel like this scene of the movie was just, I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it at all. And I love horror movies and I did not like this scene. So we'll, we'll get back to the real life events though. So the stereo was blaring and Alan, he seemed to be getting angrier and angrier. Something seemed to be happening. And then when they were all going to leave, Alan grabs nine-year-old Mary and he won't let her go. Arnie came in and he told Alan, you better let that little girl go. And surprisingly, Alan did. Let's the little girl go. Mary runs away. She's terrified. This left Arnie and Alan to battle it out. The two are going toe to toe now. One of the other cousins tried to pull Arnie out of the situation and she said he was like a stone, like he would not move. And he was also growling like an animal. Arnie then took out a knife he had in his pocket. He, he always carried this knife around, five inch blade, I think it said. And he began a frenzied, stabbing on Alan. He stabbed him multiple times in the chest. One wound was as if Arnie was trying to dissect Alan. The knife went into Alan's stomach and what I could only imagine, it was ripped up into to the bottom of the heart from stomach to chest. That is a very big, horrific wound. After this stabbing, Arnie just walked away he just walked into the woods disappearing into the trees calmly walked looked straight ahead and just walked into the woods which is 
a very haunting image. He was picked up over three kilometers away by the police later on that day, and he didn't remember doing anything. In fact, he never, ever remembers that stabbing. Never. It's like it never happened to him. He never, ever remembers that that moment where he stabbed Alan. Doesn't remember it. He claims... The devil made him do it. After his arrest, the next day, Lorraine Warren calls police and she tells the police that Arnie was possessed by a demon when that crime occurred. And police, they say, okay, sure, lady, that is not going to fly in court. But this defense actually makes its way into the courtroom. First time ever used in a court of law. Unfortunately, this is a very hard thing to prove whether or not he, uh, Arnie was possessed by a demon. Um, near, damn near impossible to prove. Arnie pled not guilty by virtue of possession. Never have I heard a guilty plea like that. I've heard of not guilty by diminished responsibility. Um but never of virtue of, of possession. The judge wouldn't buy into it as they, again, they couldn't prove that he was possessed. The defense then switched to a self-defense plea. The jury, from this, the jury found Arnie guilty of first degree manslaughter. And with this charge came a 10 to 20 year prison sentence, which was handed down to Arnie in December on 1981. He did serve only five years of this sentence and then he was released demon free. And it sounds like he stayed on the straight and narrow. I didn't see any other articles saying that he, um, was possessed again or killed again or whatever so crazy that wraps up this week's spooky paranormal special those were real cases with real paranormal encounters to them so my question is are you a believer now let me know on TikTok, let me know on our Instagram. Head on over there. It's at hell no underscore a true crime podcast. It's pretty sad. You know, it could use some involvement. It's pretty lonely over there. So head on over to Instagram. Follow me at hell no underscore a true crime podcast. Like some posts. I don't know, maybe comment whether or not you're a believer now after listening to this episode. I would love to hear it. Tune in next week for the ultimate Halloween spooky campfire pumpkin carving stories written by you and narrated by me. I absolutely love this time of year. I love reading your scary stories and bringing them to life, narrating them, putting in sound effects. I absolutely love it. I just I love Halloween. I love scary stories. I love putting all this stuff together. So don't miss next week's episode. I wait all year to do this episode. That's how much I love it. I love it. Okay. And I've got some great, great spooky stories for you this year. Just like last year. They're always, always good. Thanks for listening and see you next week for the Halloween special finale. Oh.